7.42. Now, President Moon Jae-in slated to have a number of key meetings on the sidelines of global gatherings in Singapore and then Papua New Guinea next week. But talks with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe seem unlikely, even if they're both there at the same time. Because of this renewed diplomatic standoff, we've got a quote here from a Japanese foreign ministry source uh, just looking at this in the Japan Times, for what it's worth, saying any summit between Abe and Moon would be meaningless when the South Korean government has not been clear um, how it will respond to the top court ruling. That is the Supreme Court upholding a lower court ruling that ordered Nippon Steel and Sumitomo Metal Corporation to compensate for South Koreans for wartime labor during Japanese colonial rule right at the end of last month. And what that did was open the way for individuals to take action against in basically individual Japanese entities, um, but perhaps wider action as well. Professor Brad Glossom and senior advisor of the Pacific Forum, visiting professor at Tama University Center for Rulemaking Strategies, is based in Tokyo and joins us now for further discussion. Thank you for the time. Good morning. Good to talk to you, Alex. Can you... Give us a little bit of an overview of this forced conscription compensation issue, because we've talked a lot on this show about forced sexual slavery, which is a highly emotive topic. But forced labor is perhaps um, an even wider problem, which has not been fully addressed at individual level here, according to victims. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm not sure it's a wider problem because the, the numbers sometimes of the, uh, the people that are the victimized by the practice are sometimes come as large as or become as large as the, the, the numbers of comfort women. Right. Um, but basically it was tens, if not hundreds of thousands, several, perhaps as many as 200 and something thousand uh, young men primarily were uh, taken from Korea and forced into labor to work for Japanese companies during uh, the uh, sometimes during the, the imperial period or the occupation period. And sometimes during the the, the war itself, and uh, essentially they were taken you know, back to away from their homes, uh, forced into horrific circumstances, forced to work with no or inadequate pay, uh, no pensions, etc. Then uh, at the end of the war, returned in some cases, many in some cases not, uh, and now they're seeking just a, um, you know, some recompense for that. Uh, the quite simply, uh, as in uh, the the comfort women situation. The uh, Japanese government has uh, argued essentially that all claims were foreclosed by the 1965 normalization treaty between Japan and South Korea. The South Korean government and the courts have uh, countered that, in fact, for a variety of reasons, uh, they, those claims are persisted and therefore that they can make them against the government or against the actual entities or their survivors. And that's an important uh, distinction that uh, employed them or forced them to work. Yeah, this is where we enter a certain degree of legal complexity. Um, But I think from a basic moral standpoint, we can all feel great sympathy for victims who obviously don't feel like they were represented by the South Korean government fully in 1965. But does the treaty actually um, cover individual compensation in its small print? I mean, uh, in the small print, no, there's, there's only the print. I mean, essentially what the treaty says is it forecloses all claims, that this ends up, uh, is, is the end of, of uh, you know, uh, any claim by the South Korean government, which speaks for its people against uh, Japan. And, and, I mean, I think what's important to recognize uh, most significantly is that there was a conscious decision made by the South Korean government in 1965, Park Chung-hee, to, in fact, do that. And the reason was political meaning that the President Park at the time 
was embarking on a national development project. And he made the conscious decision that the monies that would inevitably flow in one form or another from Japan to South Korea as some form of compensation or relief or whatever the word you wish to use, he wanted to control the disposition of those monies. In other words, he wanted to make sure that he got to figure out where they went and for, again, a, a national purpose. And he, my understanding from my reading of the history is, is that he deliberately you know, said this is the end of all claims precisely because he wanted to ensure that the money went to the purposes he designed rather than to individuals. Park Chung-hee's legacy is highly divisive here, but if we just kind of take the emotion around feelings about him to one side for a moment, what's your view of the Supreme Court's verdict which opens up the way for individual cases against individual Japanese entities? I think the court case is, uh, the verdict itself is understandable. As you mentioned that there is an understandable desire for for justice, for some sense of closure, for some sense of compensation. On the other hand, as a, you know, as a, as a student of international relations, and, and at one point I was an actual lawyer, my under my sense would be that nevertheless the language of the decision itself is fairly ironclad. Or not the decision itself is, is the actual the, 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 the treaty itself, and um, that. There, the courts are rooting around for a solution to uh, you know, a problem that, that I, I don't think is legally justiciable. And that's that's the biggest issue. I mean, if I may, Alex, it seems to me that there are three real sort of purposes here, one of which is, or, or three intents. The first is you can seek justice because it's the moral thing to do. And, and what, you know, is, do, the, do South Koreans seek to have the acknowledgement of the wrongs that were done to them by the Japanese? And that, that in fact, is what they're looking for. It's an actual apology, one that they would consider sincere, etc. The second is that they're looking for actual recompense. In other words, that it's less important than, if you will, the moral victory would be the money that they receive. And the third, which is the problem that, that the Japanese face, or that the, the way that the Japanese unfortunately see all this, is because they acknowledge that wrongs were done. But what they also concerned about quite deeply, and I know this goes to some of the discussion, is is that what South Korea really wants to do, rather than actually the moral issue or the the financial one, is retain the moral high ground in a dispute. And that's what really concerns them, that they will never, ever, this problem won't go away. And thus what they're concerned about is is that South Korea will, as they say, keep moving goalposts in ways that allow them to keep Japan on the defensive. The thing is, of course, um, in life we do things that we regret. At national level, that happens too. And maybe there is a sense of regret among certain government figures here that uh, the government in 1965 agreed to this treaty. But then again, where is any sense of regret within that Japanese government for its colonial rule. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? What, can you try to take us further into the, the psyche of these uh, government officials in Japan who, who seem to be emotionally tied to the era itself in some way? I mean, we know that they have family ties in some cases. In some cases, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's complex. There's not a single explanation for all this. But I think, first of all, Alex, you have to understand, the Japanese have, in fact, apologized for their war about time behavior, 27 at least, 27 different times. That's probably the minimum. And, you know, the, the issue, and I've been to a number of international conferences in Seoul where the subject comes up, and, you know, the question becomes, well, are, we want to see a sincere explanation 
or a sincere apology for what happened. And that's a very dangerous word to use because sincere is invariably in the eyes of the beholder. And, you know, I like to say that diplomacy is the art of practiced insincerity. And the, the, the argument, you know, quite frankly, it, it, that's impossible to, to ever prove in a consistent way. So, sorry to go to your question, though. So the Japanese look at this as, as a concern about an acknowledgement in many cases of the wrongs that were done. A fear, however, that this will be used forever as a cudgel to be held over their head. And the Japanese, I think, in, in some cases, are, yes, there are some folks who feel as though they got a raw deal during the war, that, in fact, their behavior was no different from others. And I think this is a, 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 a widespread but not majority view. There is a sense that uh, this is an opportunity, on the other hand, for the Japanese and the South Koreans to you know, move beyond the past. And, I mean, it's quite remarkable in some ways uh, that, you know, 20 years ago, it's very telling, sadly, 20 years ago last month, we had one of the most extraordinarily forward-looking documents and moments in Japanese South Korea history, when, at that time, uh, President Kim Dae-jung and Prime Minister Keizo Buchi signed a declaration that would look forward and move beyond the past and try to focus on a future relationship. And unfortunately, right now, it seems that politicians on both sides are far more interested in relitigating the past and, and scoring points, quite frankly than they are, I think, in generally acknowledging the, the problems in the relationship and the problems in the world and the way that they can work together it, to, it, to address them. You know, if, as you point out, there have been these dozens of past apologies by uh, yes, Japan, what's wrong with a, a Japanese leader today just saying you know, very clearly, look, the country's apologized in the past. We continue to, to recognize that what was done was was wrong. I feel great sympathies for these victims. Um, there was a 1965 treaty, but the foundation that was set up in 2015 is done so in the spirit of of, of offering further uh, comfort to the to mm-hmm. the victims of of past brutality. In other words, using sort of language that dresses this all up in in a kind of uniting manner, rather than sort of just a political level that overrides the victims and makes everybody feel like they're they're just trying to sort of hide behind the past but don't really feel that way? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, and and, and let's be very clear, Alex. I mean, I I am greatly, deeply sympathetic. And my preferred solution to this problem is, is that Japanese companies voluntarily go forward and offer compensation to the victims, which, in fact, they have done. In other cases, for example, in China, there have been cases where uh, Japanese companies have, have gone forward and, and offered a substantial amount of relief. Uh, and, you know, it reflects a political will on both sides. And I think that the Japanese fear, and then this is a reflection of conversations that I've had here for, you know, for many, many years, the fear is, is that no matter what the Japanese do, it will not be enough. And I wish that the Japanese would move a little further to test that proposition. And I wish that the South Korean government at the same time would you know, make indications that that would be enough for them. But, you know, we're at a point where there is absolutely, oh, not absolutely, but very, very little trust on either side. Both are looking for the others for signs of, of good faith, of a willingness to work this out, and neither sees it. They see a continual erosion of whatever accomplishments have occurred. But you're absolutely right. It would be nice to see the Japanese. And I, I, when I talk to my Japanese colleagues and for my friends, I, that's exactly what I tell them they should do. Uh, you know, whether they choose to listen to me is another matter. Hmm. Because, of course... 
it's like the North Korea scenario, the standoff over denuclearization. Perhaps there are people who feel like denuclearization is a non-starter, but if we don't even talk about it, if we don't talk to North Korea, you know there's absolutely no way of any progress. How is it going to look in right. the next few days if, if Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and President Moon Jae-in refuse to even talk to each other on the sidelines of these upcoming forums in Singapore and Papua New Guinea? No, you're absolutely right, Alex. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the problem just becomes is that there is a sense that, of, of a lack of faith in either side. This, this, this sense that the other team side needs to demonstrate the bona fides first. And uh, it's just, it's ex- incredibly frustrating. The other thing you have to remember is, is that for whatever domestic political pressure President Moon is under, there is a similar pressure on the part of the Japanese to sort of, you know, even for people of goodwill, of good intent, who oftentimes feel as though it's just not enough. And that therefore, it's kind of why do we give them one more tool with which to beat us with? Mm. And and you know, you and I perhaps can look back from a distance and, and without the, the political uh, pressures and without that that particular perspective. But unfortunately, we are relatively powerless in, in this entire uh, episode. And what all we can try to do is, I think, encourage a goodwill and to encourage thoughtful, forward-looking kind of uh, assessments and behavior on the part of the principals. Just briefly, we've only got about a minute. Sure. Um, South Korea's soft power seems to be rising fast, and maybe yes. Japan is, uh, I mean, it's still obviously a power in the world, but stagnating a little bit on that front, especially in terms of cultural influence. As South Korea's soft power rises, is there a fear in Japan that, that more people are going to hear about this issue and put pressure on Tokyo? There has definitely been a concern in official Japan that they're losing out on the diplomatic front on, on this and on other issues. You see them competing most assiduously with the Chinese, for example, in the spread of the Confucian Institutes. I've been arguing for a number of years, and I wrote a book on this a few years ago about the Japan-South uh, Korea uh, identity clash in their relationship. But, you know, the fact is is that I, the book that I'm going to publish that's coming out next spring talks about what I call Peak Japan. Japanese uh, uh, power and influence in the world will diminish. And I think South Korea is going to find itself in a situation where it will not be equaling Japanese power and influence in the world. But if you look at both countries' strategic long-term interests, there's far more to be gained by them working together on shared concerns and shared problems than there is to be fighting among each other. That really substantially reduces their, their leverage and their influence. So you're, you're right. They need to be thinking more about the future. And sadly, uh, politicians in both countries and decision makers seem to have a very, very short time horizon and time frame. Professor Glossaman, thank you. We'll look out for your writing and maybe catch up with you again then next spring. Always a pleasure to talk. Thank you and, and uh, have a good weekend.